So here's the sermon title. The slide goes up. It is Ephesians chapter 1. So you're wondering, what's that? I thought you said we were going to have one more in the church. Well, we were till we weren't. One of us changed our mind about that on Sunday night. And there's, there's some method to my madness because instead of one more church, we're going to do Ephesians, which is all church. Like anything else I wanted to say about the church is going to come up in Ephesians uh, maybe several times. The word church is used nine times in the six little chapters to the church in Ephesus. Um, plus the metaphors Paul uses for the church. One is biological. The church is the body of Christ. One is architectural. The church is a holy temple. One is social or marital. The church is a bride. It's really about church, 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 church. So we're kind of continuing church via Ephesians. Now let me tell you how this is going to work. First we're going to do chapter 1. That's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I'm going slow this time. We're not going fast. Hope that'll be okay with you. It's kind of like a trip. Debbie and I are planning, Lord willing, in, in late May of next year, we're going to put the bike on a trailer behind the truck, trailer the bike up to New Hampshire, and ride in, in the White Mountains for four or five days. Then we're going to leave there and trailer the bike over to the southern coast of Maine. And here's the part I want to tell you about. We're going to go slowly up the coast of Maine. I've got, a route, got routes all figured out already. I'll probably tamper with. But up the coast of Maine, we'll drive a little bit, then go down, up Route 1, then drive a little bit over to the coast and see that little seacoast town. Back, up Route 1 a little more, go over there and see that harbor. Back, over a little more, go over there and see that, hang out, have lunch. Back, up a little more. And we're going to do that for four or five days on the coast of Maine. Then we're going to go back to the Ford pickup with the trailer and trailer it on home, and then we'll be tired. But like we're going up the coast of Maine, Lord willing, next May, we're going through Ephesians, Lord willing, this time. So we're going to take chapter 1 and take our time and explore all the goodies, all the riches that are waiting there for us. And then when we get done chapter 1, we'll probably just take a little break, do a few other topical things here and there, cover something else that we've been, we've been wanting to fit in. Then we'll go to chapter 2. It'll be the same slide but a different color. And we'll do chapter 2, like going up the coast of Maine. Then we'll take a little break and so on. You get the picture. Just wanted to let you know where it's going. Here's where we're starting today. So if the main body of the sermon is going to be a house, what is today? Today is the porch. That's right. It's the porch. We're getting close to the house. We're working our way into the house. Here's where we're starting on the porch. I want you to hear how some famous Christians speak or have spoken of Ephesians. This is, this is to whet your appetite. This is to get you salivating. Try not to drool on your shirt when you hear these things. What, what have some greats said about Ephesians? Well, at the end of the fourth century, that's the 300s, the great orator and early church father Chrysostom of Constantinople wrote, this letter, Ephesians, this letter is full of Paul's sublime thoughts and doctrines, which he scarcely utters elsewhere, but plainly declares here. So Chrysostom said, man, there's stuff in Ephesians that he barely mentions anywhere else, but you really get a boatload of it in Ephesians. Jump down to the 1500s, John Calvin, the most famous Christian of that era, said Ephesians was his favorite epistle. He preached through it. It took him 48 sermons from 1558 and 1559. It was his favorite, John Calvin. Also in the 1500s, but in Scotland, another John, John Knox, the leader of the Scottish Reformation, days before his death in 1572, he had his wife, 
read to him John Calvin's sermons on Ephesians. By the way, I've read those sermons. They're collected in one volume today. He wanted Ephesians. Jumped down to the 1900s. One of the greatest evangelical scholars of those years was a man by the name of F.F. Bruce, another Scotsman apparently, and he called Ephesians the quintessence of Paulinism. Like here you find Paul as Paul like nowhere else, the quintessence. Still in the 1900s, another great biblical scholar, C.H. Dodd, called it the crown of Paulinism. Dropped down to 2002, Harold Honer has blessed the church with a magnificent commentary, best one I've ever seen on Ephesians. Other people are saying it's the greatest commentary ever on Ephesians. I plan on reading almost every word going through it. And he calls Ephesians one of the most influential documents of the Christian church. For a crass illustration of how great Ephesians is, it's like, what's the best sandwich in Bel Air, folks? You all know what it is, right? It's at Vagabond. It's the Jimmy Hendrix, right? Like, what are you doing in Bel Air if you haven't had the Jimmy Hendrix? That is the best sandwich in Bel Air, I'm convinced. It's got jelly on it, for goodness sakes. It's really amazing. So what the Jimi Hendrix is to sandwiches available in Bel Air, Ephesians is to epistles available in the New Testament. Just many people have said it is the best of the best. So we're headed in to the Jimi Hendrix, the the best sandwich, the best epistle. So uh, that's where we're starting. That's what some famous Christians have said about this marvelous book. Next, we're just going to take a moment, talk about, well, when did Paul write it? Was it like last year? Was it during covid Was it 500 years ago? When was it? Well, it was actually about 2,000 years ago. He wrote this in AD 61 or AD 62. How cool was that? Just the fact that even if it wasn't Scripture, you're reading something written in 61. That's pretty amazing. It's a prison epistle. What are the other ones? Ephesians, they're all Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. He wrote this when he was in jail. Blessed imprisonment for Paul. Thank God he spent time in jail when he had, to, had time to write books like these. So that's when he wrote Ephesians 2,000 years ago. It's been loved by the people of God for 2,000 years. It has nourished the people of God in their faith for 2,000 years. Next, why did Paul write Ephesians? We're still on the porch. Often it helps us in understanding one or the other epistles, whichever one you pick, to ask the question, why was this written? What was the author intending to accomplish? What was his purpose? For example, if you look at Galatians, why did he write it? There were Judaizers. There were problems with that. Colossians, why did he write it? There were false teachings that we now call proto-Gnosticism and a legal emphasis that emphasized secret knowledge, Colossians. Corinthians, why did he write Corinthians? Well, you name it. They were a potpourri of mess, a quintessence of badness. I've used the word quintessence twice in the sermon already. That's off to a good start. And on and on for the other epistles. They're often dealing with a problem, and the problem is identified in the epistle. Why did Paul write Ephesians? He does not identify any particular problem. He doesn't say, now I'm writing to you because I heard you have that. Not at all. But what we have to do then is read between the lines. What does he write about? And so what prompted him to write these things to those people? So I read a whole bunch of people's introductions to Ephesians. Here's where they talk about among other things, why he wrote it. And I'm going to give you what I think are the two best reasons, and I think they're both true. This is why Ephesians exists, folks. Reason number one, Paul wrote Ephesians to establish unity between Jew and Gentile in the church. 
or to put it another way, to teach them, note this please, an ethnic reconciliation that is rooted in our reconciliation in Christ. So you want to know how to do ethnic reconciliation? Read Ephesians. You want to know how to do it God's way? You want to know how to do it the real way? You want to know how to do it the deep way? Read Ephesians. Paul wrote Ephesians to get Jew who didn't like Gentile and Gentile who didn't like Jew together in one body, enjoying rich and deep fellowship in Jesus Christ. Let me show you some examples of where we see that happening, Ephesians 2.19. Paul says to these Gentiles, so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's what they were to the Jewish people, strangers, aliens. But now you are, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He wants you Gentiles to know that. He wants the Jews to know that about you. They're not second-rate citizens. They're not also rands. They didn't get into the kingdom some other way than you did. No, they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and they're members in full good standing in the kingdom of God. So there's one example of how Paul wrote Ephesians to establish ethnic unity. Here's another good verse about that, Ephesians 3, 6. And there are more, but just these two will do. Paul says this mystery, he's telling them a mystery. What's a musteria? It's something never before revealed in Scripture. There were hints of it in the Old Testament, but you couldn't see them until you had the light of the New Testament shining back to light them up, to illuminate them. Paul says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Nobody would have ever imagined that. Nobody dreamed that. People hated that when Paul said that. They are members of the same body and partakers of the promise. That's the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says, I'm revealing a mystery. That's why I'm writing, because you Jews and you Gentiles in Ephesus and all churches who read this, you need to know how this gospel is going to perform ethnic reconciliation. So we see the, the unity in two passages. We see Paul's writing for this unity between Jew and Gentile. But there are other indicators that ethnic unity is part of the theme. For example, the word one is used 14 times. He made of the two one. New man. One, 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 one. Fourteen times he says one, one, one. Then he uses the word together. It's a little preposition, three letters, S-U-N, soon. Together, together, 14 times. One, 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 14 times. Together, 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 14 times. We're up to 28 times. And then he uses these phrases, which are about the same, in Christ, in whom, in the Lord. He uses those 38 times. They tell us how the unity, how the one, how the together is achieved. It is achieved in Christ, in whom, in the Lord. Now we're up to 66 times. Then he uses the word love 20 times, 10 times as a noun, 10 times as a verb. One commentator said, quote, such a frequent occurrence of the term in such a short book is phenomenal. So when you add all those up, you got 86 times, one, 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 together, 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 in Christ, in whom, in the Lord, love, 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 86 times. What's this book about? I think it's pretty clear. It's about Jew and Gentile and everybody being one in Jesus Christ. It's how, uh, let me put the phrase up again. Reason number one, Paul wrote this. Paul wrote Ephesians to establish unity between Jew and Gentile in the church to teach them and us a reconciliation that is rooted in our reconciliation in Christ. 
and you've felt this coming, but how timely is that? How, how timely is that? Reconciling people of different ethnicities, people who have been estranged, Jews who called Gentile dogs and wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't intermarry with them. Hmm, interesting. A unity between ethnic people who are separated. Seems like we could learn a lot from that. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. In our day, when others are promoting bogus, in my opinion, useless theories about how to achieve ethnic reconciliation, Ponzi schemes that promise a lot, but at the end of the day, don't work. Ephesians is a bolt of lightning and a breath of fresh air from God. Here's how people who don't like each other can get together and be one and live in love. But there's a second reason why Paul wrote this. Reason number two, let's put it up. Paul also wrote Ephesians to teach Gentile believers about their riches. This book is about your riches that you have in Christ. Paul wants you to know how rich you are. Many of them were slaves and they were poor. Paul says, no, 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 that poor doesn't matter. That's poor in the things that don't matter. You are rich. Pity the worldly rich person who doesn't have what you have. They are poor, you are rich. How do we see that? The word riches is used six times in the first three chapters. Let me give you two examples, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, according to the riches of his grace. Or Ephesians 1, 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glory and glorious inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 1.18. This book is about riches, again, in 2.4.2.7.3.8.3.16. Riches are a prominent theme in Ephesians 1 through 3. He wants you to know and feel how very rich you are, whether poor or rich, worldly-wise. So Paul wrote Ephesians so that all believers in general and Gentile believers in particular might know how rich they are. So let's summarize this. I'll put this statement up, I believe. Ephesians is written to establish unity and to teach about our riches. Next, let's think about the city of Ephesus because this will help us to understand what's going on in the epistle as words are coming at us. We'll, be able to, we'll have a context. We'll be able to picture them in their place, and it helps us to see this hitting us in our place. What do we know about Ephesus? Was it like my hometown? I was born in Gettysburg, but raised in Silver Run, Maryland. How, have you, how many of you have heard or been to Silver Run, Maryland? One, two, three of us. You're from Westminster, no wonder. Yes. So Silver on Maryland is not a place the whole country is talking about, right? Like there's one little store in Silver on Maryland, and don't blink, as they say, the proverbial, don't blink or you'll miss the town. But we didn't live in Silver Run. We lived a mile outside of Silver Run, up on Cherrytown Road, on the corner of, get this, Turkey Foot Road, which was and is still a dirt road. So that's where I was raised, on the corner of Cherrytown and Turkey Foot, a mile outside of Silver Run, with a dirt road going down the hill down at the bottom of our yard. Great for bicycling. Ephesus wasn't like Silver Run. Ephesus wasn't like Cherrytown and Turkey Foot. Ephesus was the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Come on, help me out. What would be the first largest? Rome. What would be the second largest? Athens. That would be hard to get. I had to look it up. I didn't know. 
And, and the third largest is Ephesus. So it's like in America, you've got New York City first, you've got LA second, what's third? Chicago, that's right, Chicago. So it's Chicago, but beautified. It's Chicago made classy. It's, it's Chicago with lots of art and architecture and amazing stuff. It's a Chicago you'd actually want to live in. So, so the city of Ephesus was the third largest. It was amazing. It was known for its structures. They had the baths. They had gymnasiums. They had a stadium for gladiators and wild animals to fight each other. But the two great structures in the city were the theater and the temple of Artemis. They were the two great structures. The theater. I'm going to show you the theater. Here's, I have two pictures. Here's the first one. There's a picture of the theater. Those are the remains as we have them today. So that was the great theater in Ephesus. Here's a bird's eye view of a drawing of it. It looks like a turkey's tail, but there it is. There was a huge orchestra pit. And just to give you some perspective, it's almost 500 feet wide. It's almost 100 feet high. It seated 24,000 people. So that thing was big. That's a big theater. And this place shows up on the pages of the New Testament in Acts 19. Go back to the previous picture, please, would you? Slide man, thank you. And this is where Demetrius the silversmith stood and delivered his protest against Paul and the gospel. Acts chapter 19, I'll read some of it for you, starting in verse 28. When they, that is the silversmiths and the idolaters who loved the temple of Artemis, who loved the the gods, they made their living off of making Artemis artifacts, if you will. And when they heard this, Paul saying, the idols are nothing. You need to forget the idols. You need to leave the idols. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus. They were enraged, and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them, oh yeah, you can't see it anymore, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So show us the theater again, please, slide man. We're making him work hard today. That's that's where they dragged. This is where everybody's running there because Paul's in town preaching the gospel, and a few people are going to dress the crowds who are gathered in that place. We we read next, you have to leave that slide, Acts 19, 30 and 31. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd. So Paul's standing outside of that place. There's a huge crowd inside. They're all screaming about how great Artemis is. And Paul says, I'm going to go in there. (laughs) Good man. I'm going to go in there and talk. I want to go in there and lift up my voice and preach the gospel. Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples wouldn't let him. They said, no, man, you're not going in there. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So that was the theater. Paul was there. How many of you, some of you have been there? Oh, all right. I haven't been there either. Would love to see it. By the way, I want you to note that when, when Paul spoke to a city about her idols, He did not find himself capable of doing it in such a way that so rebranded the faith as to make it palatable to them. He did not make it so that when they heard it, they said, oh, we like this man. Yeah, we disagree a little bit, but but he's being nice to us and all. No, when Paul was done, they wanted to kill him. They had riots. They were in uproar. This happened again and again with Paul. 
Where he went, there was a riot. Where he went, there was an uproar. He was not capable, and we should not be capable, of rebranding the faith to make it palatable to people who hate Jesus Christ. It's just not biblical to do that. So that's one structure in Ephesus. Here's another structure. It's the Temple of Artemis. Let me show you a, a picture. It's, it's in decay now. It's in ruins now. But here's an artist's rendition of what that thing looked like. And if you look right here in the foreground, there's two little people at the bottom. And right at about the middle of where you go into the temple, there's one person. So that's how big that is. Let me just give you the, the size and shape. It's 225 feet wide. It's 420 feet long. A good bit bigger than a football field. Has 127 columns, 60 feet high. The whole thing is made out of solid marble. It was the largest building known in antiquity and one of the seven wonders of the world. And Paul says, Ephesus, I'm going there. Ephesus, I got to preach the gospel. And this is the Ephesus where Paul went and where the gospel went and where these believers came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus and lived and moved and worshiped. And Paul wrote to them this cosmopolitan, this prominent place. So when we're reading, don't picture Silver Run, Cherrytown Road, corner of Turkey Foot. No, you want to picture Ephesus, this great cosmopolitan center, third most important city in all of ancient Rome with the largest structure. That's it. The biggest building they had in the whole empire. It was right there in Ephesus. Next. But how did the gospel come to Ephesus? And how was the church established? How in God's providence did the word of God get there? So we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. And first, how was it formed? It's a fascinating and wonderful story how it was formed. You can read about it in Acts 18. The year is AD 52. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is on a missionary journey with some companions sent out by his home church in Antioch to evangelize peoples and plant churches. And man, did he. And we read in Acts 18, 19 and following, put the words up for you. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue. That was his beachhead. That's the first place he'd go when there was one because he'd had, had people who would hear him speak. He went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. That's where it all started. That was the start of the Ephesian church. Paul went to some Jewish people and said, I need to talk to you about the Messiah. And he stood in their midst and preached the Lord Jesus to them. And, read on, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. That's kind of a downer. Like, why? A door is open unto me and the Lord, and there are many adversaries. And he didn't go through the door. They said, stay, preach some more. He said, no, I'm sorry, I'm busy. And he had other places to go. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. That's it. That's all that happened. Now we know, reading after those lines, we know that pretty soon the famous Aquila and Priscilla, that dynamic duo of gospel power, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, it reads both ways depending on which verse, they show up in Ephesus and they provided some guidance, some work for the fledgling work. Later they were joined by the amazing Mr. Eloquent, Mr. Dynamite, Apollos, to whom they explained the word of God more accurately. Let's read about that, Acts 18.24. Now a Jew named Apollos, that's remarkable already, a Jew named Apollos. This boy wasn't raised in Jerusalem. He's from out in Hellenism. His parents had some different ideas. No wonder, read next, he was a native of Alexandria. Okay, they're out there. And he came to Ephesus. Now listen to this, I love this description of him. He was an eloquent man. The boy could talk. Competent or mighty in the scriptures. Man, this is getting good. 
The man can talk and is mighty in God's word. And being fervent in spirit. There's a third thing about him. Wow, like he's not... No, the man had some passion, like he cared. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Wow, a guy like that shows up, things are going to happen. That's pretty amazing. Not your standard variety Jewish guy from Jerusalem. What a guy, man. Like, if all your pastors drop dead somehow today, go out tomorrow and find yourselves an Apollos. All right? Get yourself an Apollos. Well, Paul had left. Those folks were there for a little while. But a year later, AD 53, God did will and Paul returned. And we read Acts 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months this time spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He had the three-month ministry, three months, 12 weeks, preaching the gospel to all the Jews gathered in the synagogue. And then what happens? Acts 19.9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Acts 19.10 is next. This continued for two years. So now we're up to two years and three months on this visit. So that, this is probably a little bit euphemistic, but so that all I have a typo in my document. Acts 19.10. So that all the people, I think it is, of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So first Paul was there, then he left. Then Aquila and Priscilla, the dynamic doer, are there. Then Mr. Amazing Apollo shows up, and he's there for a while. Then Paul's back in town. What a team for church planting. Wow, what a team. One of the lessons we learn from the book of Acts, like you say, well, man, Pastor Steve, I'm doing a Bible study in the book of Acts. It's so cool. Okay, what should happen to you when you get done your Bible study in the book of Acts? Here's the takeaway. Here's what should happen to you. You should look at the book of Acts, and you should look up at us and say, "Uh, we should be evangelizing new places. We should be planting churches. Because that's what they did all through the book. That's why we're part of an an agency, an organization called Acts 29. What do you mean 29? There's only 28 chapters in the book. Are you saying there's some hidden 29th chapter? No, we're saying ever since then, we're living in the 29th chapter. The point is we keep doing what they were doing. We take this message to people who haven't heard about Jesus yet, and we plant churches and gather them into them. So we have just seen the church in Ephesus, how it was formed. Now I want to take a few minutes and talk about how large was it? How large was it? In our day, in the United States, most churches are what is considered small. That is, they're zero to 60 people. That's considered a small church. And by far, the majority of churches are that. Then you get into medium, that's a couple hundred. Then you get into large, that's like maybe 400. That's considered a large church in our nation. And then you have a very teeny, small percentage of churches that are just absolutely huge. But that's a very teeny percentage. How about the church in Ephesus? How large was it? Well, we don't have a lot to go on, but what we do have seems to indicate large to huge. Here are the two verses that help us. Acts 19, 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts. Now, Ephesus was a center, was like a beehive of activity in the magic arts. They had a big, thriving magic arts business going on. They were a center for that in, in the Roman world. 
And a number of those, I wish Luke had told us how many, all kinds of other places in the book of Acts. He says, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000. And here he just says, a number. Thanks, Luke. Wish you'd told us how many. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together because they have now believed on the Lord Jesus. And they said, we can't have that rubbish anymore. And they burned them in the sight of all. Great big pile of books, put some gasoline on it, lit a match, went up in flames. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I didn't know, and I had to know, so you'll want to know how how much is that, 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, 50,000 pieces of silver is the average guy's wage for 50,000 days. So that's how much money the average guy made in about 130 years. So that's your life's earnings times two or three. That's what the value was of all these books they piled up and burned. So this seems to be more than one or two people came to faith in Christ. Either that or somebody had an amazing library. It seems like there were a whole lot of believers who had a couple of books. I got five books. They got 15 books. Let's burn all these books. It would seem to indicate a pretty large church to have that many books and that much value. Here's another verse that gives us another clue how large their church was. Acts 19.20, we read, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word prevailed mightily. The gospel was running with power. It was prevailing mightily. It was increasing. There were more and more and more and more believers coming to Jesus Christ. So that would all seem to indicate a large church in the city of Ephesus. So you won't believe this. We're about to leave the porch already. All right? Oh, we're about to leave the porch. Let me give you an outline of what's coming. Here's, here's, here's a quick outline. Lots of people would like this outline. Maybe the same outline's found somewhere. Ephesians 1 through 3, our wealth in Christ. It's doctrine and theology. Ephesians 4 through 6, our walk in Christ. It's duties and ethics. The duties and ethics are always rooted in the doctrine and theology. So if you're interested in duties and ethics, don't skip the doctrine and theology and come back in two years when we get to the when we get to the duties and ethics. All right. So we come to verse one, verses one and two. We might not get through them. They're called the prologue. What's the prologue? It's, it's what goes before the log. It's, it's the introduction. It's the part that goes before the body. This is called the prologue. We're stepping off the porch. We're getting our toes across the threshold in the prologue. I'll read it for you. You follow on the screen, please. Paul, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. That's the prologue. Now, you'll notice three things in it. First, you have the writer... Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Next, you have the recipients or the readers, the initial ones, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then you have the greeting itself, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. So the writer, the readers, and the greeting itself. Let's talk a little bit in the time remaining today about the writer and who is he. He identifies himself. He's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Now, why is he giving us that verbiage? He's answering the question that might come up in their minds or in your minds, who's this guy to write this stuff to me? 
Like, why should I listen to him? What is his source of authority? Why don't I get to write the letter to him? Why does he get to write the letter to me? How come he gets to tell the church what to do? And he's answering that question. Here's the basis of my authority. Here's why the church of Jesus Christ should listen to me. Here's why my word should be important to you, because I am an apostle, and not any apostle, but an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So, Let me give you a little section. I hope we can get through it today in the little time that remains. What do we need to know about apostles? There are some things you need to know about apostles so that you'll understand what Paul is claiming when he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so that you won't go doing goofy things like planting a church and calling yourself the founder, the bishop, the apostle. No, you're not an apostle, all right? So what do we know about Apostles, number one. An apostle, the Greek word is apostolos, is a messenger, one sent with a commission, one sent with the authority of another. It's very similar to what we have in our day where there are ambassadors. I tried to look up, I looked and looked and looked for a minute or two. How many ambassadors does the United States have in other countries? All it would give me was, site after site, a long list of all the countries but that never counted them, and I didn't want to count all those. It was pages and pages. We have a lot of ambassadors in other countries, and an ambassador is authorized to speak on behalf of our government and conduct the business of our government over there. They're authorized. They have authority to speak for the U.S. and to deal in things for the U.S. In a similar way, an apostle is somebody authorized by their appointer, the Lord Jesus Christ, to to deal in his stead, because he's up there at the right hand of the Father, who's speaking for him down here on the earth, who's managing his affairs, answer, the apostles are. So an apostle, an apostolos, is one sent with a commission with the authority of another. Here's the second thing we need to know about apostles. There are apostles of Jesus Christ, that's one category of apostles, and there are apostles of the churches, that's another category of of apostles. Paul is in the first category. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ, he's telling us, directly himself appointed me into this office. Unlike apostles of the churches, what are apostles of the churches? Well, they're appointed by a church to go carry uh, its message to another church. Let me give you an example. 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul says, as for Titus, He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers. It's the Greek word apostles, apostoloi, the plural form, of the churches. They're not apostles of Jesus Christ, but they're apostles of churches. A church sent them to go speak to another church in that church's behalf. That's apostle little a. There are still apostles little a today. If we send Pastor Jason over there to go see such and such a church, and we say, we want you to carry our greeting and ask them, could you help us in our endeavor in supporting a certain church plant in Baltimore City or two? He would be our sent one. He would be our commissioned person to speak on our behalf. There are apostles of the churches, and you may be one of those today. We generally call them messengers. That's what that term meant. But then there are apostles, and Paul claims to be one, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what are the qualifications for being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's go on to the third thing we need to know about apostles. Number three, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, one had to have seen the risen Lord. 
which means there aren't any more apostles of Jesus Christ unless you're claiming you've seen the risen Lord. You had to have seen the risen Lord. Where do you get that? Acts chapter 1, Judas abdicated. They want to get a replacement, and here's what they say. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So an apostle is one who is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, and ordinarily an apostle of Jesus Christ was with him during the time of his earthly sojourn, ordinarily. So to be an apostle of Christ, you had to have seen the risen Lord, and Paul did. We'll get to that in a bit. A fourth thing you need to know about apostles is this. The apostles of Jesus Christ received, you really need to know this, they received from Jesus a promise of revelation I'm going to show you guys things. And recollection, I'm going to help your memory to remember accurately some things. Thus, they spoke and wrote with the authority of Jesus. This answers, before I get to the verse, this answers this awful claim, this imbecilic claim in our day that that you hear people say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. No, if you like Jesus, you're like Paul, because Jesus said, Paul, I appoint him, you listen to him, he's my man. I revealed what, to him what he knows, I'm helping him recollect what he learned, he's getting it right. If you love Jesus, you've got to love Paul and the other apostles. Let me show you where Jesus promised this, one of the places, the main one, John 14 starting in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you, says Jesus, while I am still with you. All right, so you heard everything I spoke while you were with me. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you apostles. This is a local promise. This is not a general promise to you. The Holy Spirit isn't teaching you new things. He's teaching you what's in the Word of God but he's teaching them all things, and he's bringing to their remembrance all that I have said to you. So that's a specific promise given to apostles. I'm I'm pre-authorizing what they say and what they will write. It's going to be accurate because I'm giving them my spirit. He will guide them into all truth that I want them guided into, and he will remind them accurately of everything they've heard me say, and they're going to get it all down right in the book. I don't have this verse for you up on the screen, but 2 Corinthians 13.10 says, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. They also have authority to be severe. So apostles received a promise of revelation and recollection, and they spoke and wrote with the authority of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. How did he get to be one of those? Uh, He wasn't a believer when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. How's Paul get in that number? We're going to get to that one day, but we can't get to that today. Instead, we're going to go on in verse 1, and notice how Paul heaps up more terms, terms upon terms. Let's make sure they all get it. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, that group, that very small, that very unique group, And then he adds, by the will of God. What's that there for? It wasn't by my will. 
Wasn't by some human will. Wasn't some church sent me. Wasn't some council. Wasn't some group. Wasn't some bunch of people. I'm an apostle by the will of God. He expands that in Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and through God the Father who raised him from the dead. So what's all this about? Paul is saying, look, here's why I'm writing to you and you're not writing to me. Here's why I'm reading Scripture and you're, you're reading Scripture. Here's why I have authority and you don't have the authority, but you're supposed to submit to my authority. Here's why, because I am an apostle, capital A, of the Lord Jesus Christ through the will of God. And next time we're going to see how Paul became an apostle, even though he wasn't a believer when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. So, wait a second. Sometimes I put conclusions here and there because I never know where I'm really going to end, and now all of a sudden I can't find the ones I wanted. Here are the conclusions. We're getting into Ephesians, people, like the quintessence of Paulinism, all right? We're getting into Ephesians. So I have two things I want to ask you to do. I can remember what they were. Two things I want to ask you to do. Number one, pretty easy, be here. People say to me after church sometimes, thank you, Pastor Steve, for preaching that to us today. And I usually, if not always, say thank you for listening to that today because if nobody's listening, I'm not preaching. It's like teamwork. We're working on this together. No preacher if there's no listeners. Thank you for being listeners. Come and be listeners. Secondly, not the one you're expecting. You're expecting I'm going to say, and try to and do what you, that, that'd be good, but here's the one I'm going to say. Read through Ephesians. I don't know where you are in your personal devotional reading of God's Word. Can you just put it aside for a week? I know you're a month behind your plan, right? Just get another week behind your plan and just read Ephesians and Ephesians and Ephesians and Ephesians and prime the pump for all the delicious Jimi Hendrix sandwiches ready for us in the book of Ephesians. All right? All right? I didn't hear anybody say all right. All right? Oh, that's so much better. Thank you. Glad to know you're here and following along. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And we pray that people will be saved during Ephesians so that that in the future they might talk together and say, hey, I was saved in chapter 1, verse 9. How about you? Oh, I was chapter 3, verse 2. Father, we pray that people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of this great book. And we pray that you would build up and strengthen us, this group of your people, this, this portion, this flock of your people. Strengthen us, nourish us, grow us strong in the Lord Jesus as we hear and consider the words of this letter. So come in your power, send the Holy Spirit. We pray for all in the name of Jesus. Amen.